Good morning. It is good to get to worship together. Um, we want to call to mind the truths of the Lord this morning. This is from Lamentations 3, 21 to 24. It says, Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. Let's call to mind the faithfulness of the Lord together this morning.
Well, good morning, and welcome to Faith Bible Church on this beautiful Sunday morning. Thank you so much for gathering with us as we worship online again this morning, which feels so weird to say. Uh, my name is Seth Brown. I'm the pastor of Adult Connections, and on behalf of the staff and elders of the church, we are praying for you. Please know that. Uh, we do love you very much. We miss seeing you around the church. But please be on the lookout for consistent weekly emails and communication from the church as we look to encourage you in your faith, as we look to, uh, to stay connected with you. And again, God, we are praying for you uh, in these very strange days. Uh, in fact, the Apostle Paul writes these words uh, to the ch uh, church in Thessalonica um, in the second and third chapters as, as he uh, speaks to them about how much God loves them and desires to strengthen them in their faith. He says this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, May our Lord... Jesus Christ himself, and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. In addition, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. We have confidence in the Lord about you, he will strengthen and guard you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to God's love and Christ's endurance. And we do praise God for his word to us this morning. One last thing, you also may notice that our setup is a little bit different this morning. Uh, this temporary change is simply better for our band as they lead us into the presence of the Lord this morning. And so along those lines, we very much appreciate Addie Zander leading us this morning. Good job, Addie. That's Weird not having any feedback in here at all, but you're doing a great job. Uh, thank you for leading us this morning. And as we prepare to continue to sing God's praises together and hear his word preached, uh, our hope and our desire is that God would strengthen us in our faith in a time of uncertainty, fear, and anxiety. And so join me as I pray for us all this morning. Father, we do thank you for bringing us into your presence this morning, uh, for Christ and his death and resurrection that gives us opportunity to not only have a relationship with you, but to worship you in spirit and in truth, and to come into your presence, to your throne of grace. Uh, God, we are in a time of need. Uh, we are always in a time of need. And so, God, direct us uh, into your throne room. Uh, God, give us peace and encouragement and strengthen our faith this morning as we sing your praises and hear your word teach, uh, taught this morning. Father, we, we do love you. We do thank you for your love. We do thank you for providing a way for salvation. And God, in these times of uncertainty and fear, God, we look to you. Strengthen us, God, both today and the days to come. And I pray that in all things, we would glorify and honor you. We love you. Again, we thank you for Jesus. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. Let's continue singing to the Lord.
to know you more during this time, Lord, that we would know you as our refuge in a new way, that we would know you are our only hope and stay in a fresh way because of this this season. So thank you we get to gather like this. Thank you we get to hear from your word, that we get to be encouraged and built up because of it. And I just pray that you would bless this time and make it edifying to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, greetings to you from all of our uh, pastors and our staff and our elders. It's, uh, it's great to be with you here this morning, and uh, we thank you so much for joining us uh, via live stream. Uh, we're kind of in the round here this morning. As, uh, as Seth mentioned, the band is kind of in this setup, and it makes it a lot easier for them to kind of see each other. And, and uh, I love being in here as well, being in kind of cor- close quarters with them. And uh, we're just so grateful for them. They're doing a great job, and we appreciate so much um, our worship band uh, and the, the uh, Wednesday night night of worship that they gave to us on Wednesday night. Uh, it was a great privilege to be here with them. We hope to do that, some more of those um, in upcoming weeks, so be watching online and on your uh, email for announcements uh, concerning that. Uh, we're grateful to God that even in these uncertain times in which we live, that all of us are experiencing at least a measure of God's grace and mercy. And uh, let's not forget to enjoy uh, the daily blessings of God. Um, just uh, this morning as I was driving up Coltrane, uh, it, it's just lined with, with beautiful red bud trees. Uh, just a, a, another kind of a silent reminder of God's wonderful goodness to us in times like these. Uh, so let's not forget to enjoy all of the wonderful blessings that God is giving to us in life, even in these uncertain times. Uh, we want you to know uh, as, a, as a church and as a staff uh, that we're praying for you. Uh, We're standing ready to serve you, so let us know if there's some way that we can help you. If you have a need, uh, we count it a privilege to serve you, and so uh, be sure uh, uh, not to get isolated and start feeling alone and despair. If you you need some encouragement or some help, or maybe some help in a practical way, uh, be sure and reach out to us. We'd love to minister to you and help you. As we uh, go to a time of prayer this morning, I want to remind us of Psalm 9419. Um, You might want to write that down. This is a great verse. You'll want to go back to it, I know, this week. Um, Here's what Psalm 94, 19 says. When my anxious thoughts are many, your consolations delight my soul. Uh, Look, a lot of us are having a lot of anxious thoughts these days. When when my anxious thoughts are many, when they're multiplied, your consolations uh, delight my soul. 
Well, let's find some consolation now as we go before the Lord I'm in a time of prayer. Bow your heads with me wherever you are there with your family. Maybe even join hands with your family members as we pour our hearts out here to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, there are many anxious thoughts today. We thank you that your consolations can delight our soul as those anxious thoughts pour into our hearts and minds. Father, we thank you for your strong encouragement that you give to us, that you're our fortress, you're our stronghold, you're our shield, you're the rock that's higher than we are. Father, we thank you for your consolations, but we thank you for your character. Father, we're reminded of the words of that beautiful old song to say, change and decay, and all around I see, O thou who changest not, abide with me. O God, you're an unchanging God in changing times. You're a certain God in uncertain times. We worship you and we praise you. We confess that we need you. We need you far more than we'll ever know or realize. Father, strengthen us and help us. Father, use this time in our culture to strengthen our hearts and to search our hearts and to bend our, our, our wills and our lives uh, to you. Father, energize us and fill us with your Spirit so we can be useful vessels for you in this time in which we live. Father, as families are closer together now in closer quarters and there's been adjustments to schedules and routines, I pray that you'll help us not to grind against each other more, but to love one another more and to, uh, to find ways to express patience and grace and kindness to one another. Father, help us in our marriages to find ways to be patient and to be gracious uh, to one another. Father, I pray for children and young people at this time. Uh, these uncertain days, our children may have a lot of questions. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to be a great comfort to them as we see, they see how we respond in times like these. So, Father, as, as husbands and wives, as children, as families, um, whatever relationships we have to one another, Father, minister to us, encourage us in these times, and, Father, help us uh, to be wonderful examples and witnesses for you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Back on uh, February 29th, Cheryl and I left Edmond for a 13-day trip to Israel. We went over a little bit earlier than the rest of the group, and we could have never imagined how drastically uh, the world was about to change by the time we returned home. Uh, while we were in Israel, the, the coronavirus kind of mushroomed around the world, and uh, the world was changed forever. I've mentioned this to you before, but the, the trip was great. We had great weather, great fellowship. Uh, but near the end of our trip, the dominoes kind of began to fall a little bit. Uh, President Trump canceled all the flights uh, from the U.S. to Europe. Um, a lot of people in our tour group uh, had flights canceled and had to get work on connections. There were uh, frustrating calls to overwhelmed airlines that sometimes dragged on for several hours for the people in our group. Our relatives and friends back home were concerned about our, our safe and speedy return. And uh, my wife was literally being barraged with text messages from back home. Now, I wasn't getting any. Nobody ever texts me much. But she was getting all kinds of, of text messages and, and relating those to me. Uh, but our tour group was one of the final ones to get out of Israel. No more groups were allowed after we left. And our, our, our final day of touring there in Jerusalem was, uh, was kind of eerie. I mean, the streets were eerily empty. Uh, the vendors were absent. Shops were closed. Um, Israel was preparing, like everybody else, to kind of hunker down uh, for the long haul. 
But on our way back from Tel Aviv, Cheryl and I were standing in the airport in line there on our delayed flight back to Newark and New Jersey. And there were two young men standing there in front of us, and uh, one of them was standing there, and he had two of the largest plastic bags I've ever seen filled with bottles of vodka that I, he, he had purchased in, in the duty-free shop there. And uh, they were standing in front of us. It was a pretty long delay. So I struck up a conversation with these two young men, and at one point, one of them looked at me and Cheryl with kind of a bewildered look on his face, and he said, I don't know what in the world is going on. He says, I think the world is about to end. Now, I was surprised by his unexpected comment, but I told him, I said, I can assure you this isn't the end of the world, but I said, I do believe that Jesus could come back at any time. And you need to make sure you've trusted him as your Savior so you'll be ready when he comes. We looked back at me with kind of a blank stare, clearly having no idea how the comment he just made and what I said connected together. And then he just turned back and started talking to his friend again. So obviously he didn't find my uh, comments very enlightening. But that young man's question, I think, in one form or another has probably been on the minds of many people in recent days. We see empty streets and closed malls and shopping centers, uh, people holed up in homes, sheltering in place. It, it all kind of has an apocalyptic feel to it. Um, we see this pandemic uh, that, that's taking place. Uh, I thought it was interesting. A couple of days ago, we had a big hailstorm here, hailstorm here in Oklahoma, large hailstones coming down, some of them the size of ping pong balls. Heard someone comment recently and say, you know, all we're waiting for now is the locusts. Well, there are locusts actually over in the Middle East and in Africa. There have been kind of record locust plagues uh, there. Uh, one of my sons told me uh, the other day that uh, 2020 is supposed to be one of the uh, most active hurricane seasons in several years. So people kind of everywhere have this sense that what in the world is going on? It's kind of like apocalypse uh, is in the air. Now, while many people may not want to say it aloud, I think many people must be wondering if this COVID-19 plague is an omen of the end, if it's some kind of a, of a signal of what's to come, if it's a harbinger of the end of days, if it's kind of another signpost on uh, the road to Armageddon. Uh, zeroing in on this coronavirus outbreak, uh, Dr. Al Mohler, who's the president of Southern uh, Baptist Theological Seminary, he says this, Current events surrounding the outbreak of the coronavirus have personal, fiscal, and physical repercussions for us all. But for Christians, looking at the news, we hear echoes of what we find in Scripture. For example, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, verse 11, where Jesus says, There will be earthquakes and in various places plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Well, Dr. Moley here, I think, is, is spot on. The coronavirus echoes what we find in Scripture. And I think it's important for us as believers to understand what Jesus said about plagues and pandemics in the end times so we can be equipped to talk to people we meet who have questions. I mean, first of all, we need to just understand these things for ourselves, but we need to be equipped so that we can answer questions that maybe our, our family members or our friends may have as we interact with them. A lot of you may, uh, may know this about President Ronald Reagan, but he had, he had terrible vision. In fact, his vision was so bad he was denied combat duty in World War II. 
Later on in his life, though, he got two lenses, and he had a, a lens in his left eye, a contact lens that allowed him to see up close, and he had one in his right eye that allowed him to see um, at distance. And so he would read his speeches with his left eye, but he could keep an eye on the audience uh, with, with his right eye. And commenting on that, uh, my friend Philip DeCourcy in his book, Take Cover, um, he says this, There's a good lesson to be learned from the practice of President Reagan and his use of both a nearsighted and farsighted lens. In looking upon the world and the emerging events of our day, the Christian must take both a near and a far look. We must simultaneously live in the meantime with a view to the end time. And Jesus soon returned. We must look beyond the temporal world. We must look up and away from our present and painful circumstances and the anticipation of a coming kingdom. While the immediate news of the day often captures our attention with all its alarm and horror, we must push past the depressing news of what our world is becoming and view in Christian hope what the world will become when the Lord Jesus returns in power and glory to establish a new heaven and a new earth. But all this bad news, he says, must in a way be viewed as good news because the signs of our times are pointing to the signs of the end of the age and the recapture of earth by heaven at the return of Christ. The Bible tells us things will get worse before they get better. But we must not be nearsighted alone. We must be farsighted. To survive and thrive in a world gone mad, we as Christians must begin with the end. We must constantly and confidently keep an eye on the horizon as we look for the second coming of Christ in the clouds with power and glory. I like that. You and I need to be meantime Christians. We also need to be end-time Christians. And that's really what we've done uh, the last couple of weeks here and this morning in our messages. Uh, the last two weeks, we've kind of put on that distant, that, that uh, close-up lens. We've looked at how we need to live in the meantime. We looked a couple weeks ago at the storms of life in Mark chapter 4. We looked last week at the stampedes of life in Psalm 11. But what I want to do this morning is I want us to put on that distance lens, if you will, and look at signs of the times, and to look at uh, what's coming ahead to give us hope and to give us comfort in these times in which we live. So let's put on that distance lens and let's see what the Bible says about what's happening in our world today and how it foreshadows what's coming in the future. Now, one thing I want to mention about when we look at signs of the times, we don't want to look at the Bible through current events, but the other way around. We never want to look at the Bible through the lens of current events. Rather, we look at current events through the lens of the Bible. So that's what we want to do this morning is look at what's happening in our world through this distance lens of the Word of God. So I've got two main points this morning that I want us to look together at. I want to look at John, the Apostle John, plagues and prophecy. And then we'll look at Jesus and what he said about plagues and prophecy. Now, I've kind of changed the order of these. If you ran the outline off, we're going to look at what John says first and then Jesus uh, this morning in our outline. Now, let me just say this as well, just kind of as a, an upfront statement before we get into the Scriptures here. God has not given us prophecy and, and information about the future to scare us but to prepare us. 
He's not given us this information to make us anxious, but rather to make us aware and to make us alert. God wants us to be alert to the times um, in which we live. So let's hear the word of the Lord this morning. So take your Bible and open with me to Revelation chapter 6. We're kind of going to drop down here in in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 6 and verse 8. Now, Revelation 6, 1 through 8 is the famous prophecy, the well-known prophecy of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You have a rider on a white horse, a red horse, a black horse, and then a pale horse. And these are the first four of the seven seal judgments in in the book of Revelation. Now, let me read uh, verse 8 for us because uh, of these four riders, this is really the one that I think applies most directly to our times today. The Apostle John writes this inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I looked and behold an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. And authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. So reads God's inspired inerrant word. Uh, Many years ago, about 40 years ago, almost 40 years ago, Billy Graham authored a very powerful uh, book, a very riveting book, and it was titled Approaching Hoofbeats, The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And in that book, Billy Graham said this, Some theologians and Bible scholars have thought these scenes as described by the Apostle John are a description of past events. However, most evangelical scholars interpret them as having to do with the future. He says, in my view, the shadows of all four horsemen can already be seen galloping throughout the world at this moment. Therefore, I only want to apply these four symbols of events. He says, I not only want to apply these four symbols of events yet to come, but also to put our ears to the ground and hear their hoofbeats growing louder by the day. I can hear the hoofbeats of these horses much louder than when I first began writing this book. And again, that's over 40 years ago that Billy Graham wrote those words. So those approaching hoofbeats that Billy Graham wrote about have really become thundering hoofbeats today. Now, I don't want to take time to look at all of these four horsemen, but uh, the rider on the white horse that comes forth I don't think is Christ. Jesus rides forth on a white horse later in the book of Revelation in chapter 19. I think this is a, a, a false Christ. This man's a parody of Christ. He's a counterfeit Christ. This is the Antichrist who will come riding forth at the beginning of the tribulation on a platform of peace. He's going to present himself to the world as a great peacemaker. You'll notice as you read that later that he has a bow, but he doesn't have any arrows. So he comes and kind of has a conquest through a diplomacy. The rider on the next horse, this red horse, is warfare. He comes and takes peace from the earth. So evidently at the beginning of the coming tribulation, there's going to be a a brief time of peace, but it's going to be shattered by this rider on the red horse who's carrying a large sword in his hand. Now one of the things that often follows warfare is famine. So the rider on the next horse in Revelation chapter 6 verses 5 and 6 is the rider on the black horse. And of course this speaks of famine that's going to sweep the earth Uh, during that period of time, and also uh, uh, a collapse of the economy, really a hyperinflation that's going to take place. And then then we come to verses 7 and 8 to this fourth seal, uh, this fourth horseman. And of course, with each of these horsemen, the severity of the judgment intensifies. And this pale horse is no exception. You'll notice in uh, verse 8, it says, I looked and behold an ashen horse. 
Now, the word ashen there in Greek is the word chloros, from which we get our words like chlorine or chlorophyll, and it normally denotes kind of a pale green color. But it pictures here the color actually of like a decomposing corpse. It's a corpse in the advanced state of corruption is the picture here. So it's a very graphic, vivid picture. And notice the rider on the horse is called uh, Hades. So wherever death rides, the grim reaper is trailed by Hades. So Hades here is personified. He follows behind the pale rider and kind of acts as death's hearse, if you will. In fact, uh, Chuck Swindoll puts it like this. He says, in this terrifying scene, John saw the grim reaper and the gravedigger moving together across the face of the earth. Death slays the body while Hades swallows up the soul. These two symbols represent the massive number of deaths that will follow in the wake of the first three horsemen. One quarter of the world's population will be lost in their rampage. Now that boggles the mind for us to really think about that, a fourth of the earth. The Bible says in this one plague, 25% of the world's population will die at the hands of this, this pale rider. It tells us here this pale rider employs four means to wreak his havoc. Down at the end of verse 8, with sword, we all know what that is, it's warfare. With famine, that kind of looks back to the rider on the black horse. And then with pestilence. Now the word that's used here in Greek is actually just the word death. But it's often associated in the Old Testament with plagues and pestilence, so most commentators believe that's what it's referring to in this case. But then it mentions, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now, as you can imagine, people have come up with different views about what this means. Now, some people think that these are literal wild animals that are going to become more unrestrained and ferocious in the end times and uh, go around uh, uh, killing people. Uh, That seems a little bit far-fetched to me that wild animals would be on that kind of a rampage globally. I guess it's possible. Um, Another view is that the wild beasts here are military and political rulers who murder and slaughter people all over the earth during the end times. And the reason people hold that view is this, this word wild beast, it's just one word in Greek, it's the word therion. And Therion's found 38 times in the book of Revelation, and all the other times it refers to uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet, his henchman. So based on that, people believe that the wild beast here uh, refers to the Antichrist and kind of brutal world leaders um, in the end times. But the third view, and the view that I think is probably the best view in this context, is the wild beasts of the earth here are wild beasts that are going to transmit diseases to people from which they'll die. And I think that's in the context, the word right before it of being pestilence and the wild beasts of the earth, I think these two are related to one another. Um, Adrian Rogers, a well-known pastor, he puts it like this, what kind of animal do you think of when you think of a beast? A bear, a tiger, a rhinoceros? Beasts come in many sizes. If you look up the word in a dictionary, the definition may define a beast as only a four-footed animal. Do you know what beasts carried the black plague? Rats. These tiny four-footed mammals um, carry a bubonic bacterium that killed more than 25 million people. And, of course, we know today that the wild beasts of the earth have expanded from rats to bats and monkeys and and, and pigs and birds. Um, Deadly viruses are hopping from animals to people at an alarming rate. And so in that way, our world today is kind of ripe for this pale rider. 
Um, The stage could not be more perfectly set for this fourth horseman to begin to ride. These plagues from the wild beasts of the earth are multiplying throughout the earth. Uh, Animal-born plagues that jump from animals to human are called zoonotic diseases. Um, And a host of these have appeared throughout history, but they've mushroomed in recent decades. When a disease goes from animals to humans, it's called a spillover event when that takes place. And here's what's interesting. According to the CDC, three of every four new or emerging infectious diseases come to people from animals. I mean, think about that. That's staggering. 70%, 75% of all new infectious diseases cross from animals to humans. We've seen it a lot recently, diseases like MERS and, and SARS and the bird flu. Uh, the swine flu. I remember uh, years ago when the swine flu was raging, I saw an article in uh, the, the Wall Street Journal, and the title said, Apocalypse Now. And again, the, the writer wasn't trying to make light of what was happening, but simply the idea that there was a, a connection between these plagues and the final apocalypse. And one article I read recently said, on average, in one corner of the world or another, a new infectious disease has emerged every year for the past 30 years. And so this novel coronavirus is just the newest one of these. And when you think about it, these, do, the, these diseases now are erupting at the same time globalism and rapid means of travel um, are expanding that provide the perfect vehicle for these plagues to sp- spread all over the world, just like we've seen in recent days. We have an interconnected world. There's interconnected travel, interconnected supply lines. So coronavirus may be just the first wave of pestilence that ultimately the Bible says during the tribulation period are going to sweep, uh, sweep over the earth. Uh, let me mention just one other prophetic connection that I think is interesting in these times in which we live with this outbreak of coronavirus is there could be a real interesting connection between viruses like this and the rise of the Antichrist. Um, I ran across an article in in my research um, just this last week that said the ex-UK Prime Minister Gordon Brown calls for a global government to tackle the coronavirus pandemic. In other words, he's asking for the forming of a temporary form of global government to combat the coronavirus uh, crisis. And again, it's these kinds of things that are setting the stage for events that we see uh, clearly laid out for us in Scripture. Now, as frightening as it is, I don't believe the uh, corona crisis is the fulfillment of the prophecies of John here in Revelation chapter 6. Uh, the pale rider hasn't come yet. Uh, the coronavirus is not a fulfillment of prophecy, but I do believe it's a foretaste or a foreshadow of what lies ahead. But coronavirus is not the fulfillment of these plagues in the book of Revelation. You say, well, how can we be sure of that? Well, first of all, the rapture hasn't happened yet. And I think the rapture is going to have to take place for the tribulation to begin and for these uh, judgments uh, to be unleashed. Secondly, the tribulation period hasn't started, and the Antichrist, the rider on the white horse, has not appeared yet. He's going to have to appear before the rider on the fourth horse uh, comes forth. So the curtain of the end times has not been raised. We're still in the time when the stage is being set. But coming events cast their shadows before them. And the days of the apocalypse haven't dawned, but we see the shadow, I think, of the pale rider all around us. Look, everybody today, all the researchers out there are looking for a cure and a vaccine to combat the coronavirus. And that makes a lot of sense. 
And uh, God has been gracious to give us wonderful professionals and researchers uh, that we should be thankful for, uh, that can find a cure, maybe or a vaccine for this disease. But when these diseases come ultimately in the end times, during the tribulation period, there's not going to be a cure. Uh, there's not going to be a vaccine. Uh, the world is going to succumb to an invisible enemy. And here's what Al Mohler uh, says. He highlights the, the, the severity of these end-time plagues and, and points to Jesus as our only hope. He says, beyond the issue of public health, important as that is, Christians understand the deep biblical and theological overtones to all of this. Eventually, there's going to come a plague that will not be stopped, for which no antidote will be found, for which no vaccine will be effective. It is because that plague is going to come as an act of God's judgment upon humanity. And Christians know in this case, as in every other, there's no safe place to be but in Christ. Look, the darkness of the pale rider is in sharp contrast to the bright hope of the any moment coming of Jesus Christ. So if you've never done so, put your faith and your trust and your hope in Jesus Christ. He is our only refuge uh, from the storm of judgment that's coming. Now, that's what John says about plagues and about prophecy and revelation. So what I want to do is backtrack now about 60 years and go back to Matthew chapter 24. So if you'll take your Bible and turn back there with me to Matthew chapter 24, we want to look at what Jesus um, had to say about uh, these plagues in the end times. On, on Wednesday... Uh, April 1st of A.D. 33, Jesus preached his final great sermon. It was kind of his farewell address. After a long, tense day of, of confrontation between Jesus and the relig religious leaders in the temple precincts, uh, Jesus and his kind of beleaguered band of 12 disciples made their way out of the temple area for the final time of Jesus' ministry. Jesus left the temple area never to go back there again during his earthly ministry. And as they left, Jesus pointed back at the, the stunningly beautiful buildings there in the temple area, and he dropped a bombshell on his disciples. Notice in, chapter, uh, in Matthew 24, verse 1, Jesus came out of the temple, was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he answered and said to them, Do you see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Now imagine somebody today predicting the destruction of the White House or Buckingham Palace or the Empire State Building or the Sydney Opera House or the Louvre. Uh, you'd want some more details about that, right? Well, Jesus' disciples certainly wanted more information about the temple uh, being thrown down and destroyed. So after they'd crossed that deep ravine known as the Kidron Valley and they'd ascended the western slope of the Mount of Olives, Jesus reached a stopping point and sat down there somewhere, probably on one of the many rocks that litter that area. And desperately in search for more details about this forecast Jesus had given, three of Jesus' closest followers, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, come to Jesus and ask him this question. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, his disciples said to him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So sitting there in full view of the temple, about 200 feet below, as the sun lowered and the shadows lengthened over the city of Jerusalem, uh, Jesus, the preeminent prophet, issued what one writer has called a buckle your seatbelt, no kidding, life can be fatal to your health kind of warning. 
The sermon Jesus gives is often called the mini-apocalypse because it's kind of a, a condensed version of the book of Revelation. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus answered and said to them in, in uh, Matthew 24, verse 4, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it you're not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For a nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now, in Luke 21, 11, a parallel account to this, Luke adds this, and there will be great earthquakes and in various places, plagues and famines. So Jesus said a lot of things in this great farewell discourse he gave to his disciples. But one big idea can't be overlooked or dismissed. Jesus tells us this world as the end times approach is not going to become a better place to live in. In fact, things are going to ultimately get bad. They're going to get really bad before they get better at the coming of Jesus Christ. So those who believe the world is just going to get better and better and better as time goes along are going to be in for a rude awakening. Uh, Jesus doesn't hold out that kind of false hope for the world. In fact, Jesus gave his disciples and us a foreboding forecast, a dark description of what's going to happen in the end times. And he says, look, times of unbelievable calamity are going to come upon this world. Jesus didn't pull any punches. Uh, Jesus wasn't like a lot of preachers today who try to sugarcoat uh, what lies ahead. Uh, One writer put it like this, painful contractions um, are in the forecast. So so Jesus begins this powerful prophetic forecast by listing three main signposts uh, that mark the road to what we might call the beginning of the end. And the first thing he mentions is heresy. There can be a lot of false messiahs out there, a lot of false teaching. Then he mentions rivalry. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom. But then he mentions calamity. He mentions earthquakes and pestilence and and famine and plagues. And Jesus called this the beginning of birth pains. In other words, these are the initial signs that the end is near. So like birth pains, these, these calamities of the end times are going to strengthen and intensify and get closer together as the end draws near. So they're going to increase dramatically in intensity and frequency. Now, one relevant question people are asking today is, is this coronavirus that we see one of these uh, beginning contractions? And there are a lot of people that believe that it is. A lot of prophecy teachers online, you'll see them saying, this is one of the birth pains Jesus spoke of. Uh, One Bible prophecy teacher that I like very much, he's a friend of mine, but he says this, I believe what we're witnessing with COVID-19 is part of the birth pains Jesus talked about in the Olivet Discourse. In fact, I think it's a major birth pain, as, as is the locust plague that's ravaging Africa and the Middle East, as is the large number of social uprising in countries around the world, as is the increase in earthquake activity, as were the record ranking of Australian wildfires, as is, he says, you get the picture. Birth pains increase in frequency and intensity and continue to do so until the moment of delivery. Now, I understand that sentiment, and it's one that's held by a lot of prophecy teachers. In fact, uh, my friend and mentor, Dr. John Walford, he held that these birth pains are signs that would appear during this present age. 
But I and, and, and several other uh, prophecy teachers I really respect believe that Matthew 24 and Luke 21, 11 still await fulfillment in the future. Now, I don't want to take a lot of time on this, but there are different views of the timing of the Olivet Discourse. Some people take this was all about A.D. 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem back then, that that's what Jesus was talking about. A lot of people say, well, this is kind of a a dual fulfillment. It kind of looks at 70 A.D., but it looks at that as kind of a preview of what's going to happen in the end times. Other people see the first part of this sermon, the birth pains and all of that, as happening presently right now. The earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars and things like that. But the view I hold is that Matthew 24 is looking at events that are going to happen in the future. There are events that are going to be unveiled during the tribulation period. Let me just give you a few reasons why I hold that. One is these kinds of things have always been with us. There's always been wars. There's always been deception. There have always been earthquakes. There have always been famines and plagues. And so you look at these and say, well, they've always been with us. So if they're going to serve as signs, how bad do they have to get before they ultimately serve as a sign of the end times? To me, it's kind of vague and nebulous. A second reason I see this is referring just to the future tribulation is if you go to 1 Thessalonians 5, the apostle Paul puts birth pains in the tribulation period. He says, you yourselves know full well the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. For while they are saying peace and safety, sudden destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pains upon a woman, and they will by no means escape. So the Apostle Paul there puts those birth pains in the day of the Lord or in the time of the tribulation. Um, Another reason that I see this as being future is Jesus speaks of these as labor pains. And we know labor pains don't begin until shortly before the delivery time. So I think these will begin at the beginning of the tribulation and the delivery will be uh, seven years later at the end of that period of time. But I think the strongest evidence for putting Matthew chapter 24 in the future tribulation, or there's a lot of parallels between Matthew 24 verses 4 to 14 and Revelation 6, the passage we just looked at. You think about this, in in Matthew 24, you have false Christs. And you go to Revelation chapter 6, the first horseman is a rider on a white horse. The next thing you have in, in, in Matthew 24 is wars and rumors of wars. The next horseman is the rider on the red horse in Revelation 6. The next thing you have in, in Matthew 24 are famines. Then you have the rider on the black horse in Revelation 6 that speaks of famine. And then you have uh, plant fa- famines and plagues and these other things in, uh, in, in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. And you have the rider on the pale horse or the pale rider in Revelation 6. So wherever you put Revelation 6, you have to put Matthew 24 because of these numerous parallels uh, between these two passages. And again, since Revelation 6 is clearly during the time of the tribulation, that first half of the seven-year tribulation, that's where I think we have to put these events in Matthew 24 um, as well. So that raises the question then, does the coronavirus contagion have any relevance to the end times? I was reading a book, a rereading a book this last week by John MacArthur called The Second Coming. And he has a really good statement in there. He says, that doesn't mean the area we're living in is the one Christ describes, but it does underscore the imminency of Christ's return for the church. The world in which we live is already ripe for the tribulation. Elements like the birth pain signs are already being felt. 
The present afflictions may merely be, and I like this, he says, like Braxton Hicks contractions, premature labor pains, but they nonetheless signify that the time for hard labor and then delivery is inevitable and quickly drawing near. So MacArthur says, look, he doesn't think these are the the birth pains here in Matthew 24, but they're like those Braxton Hicks contractions that are like premature labor pains that signify the time for hard labor and delivery is inevitable and quickly drawing near. And I agree with that. What we're seeing today is not the events of Revelation 6 or Matthew 24. Those are future. But we are seeing, as MacArthur puts it here, the premature labor pains, if you will, that signify that this time of hard labor is coming and that that the end is quickly drawing near. Now, one final question I want to answer here this morning, a lot of people are asking, is, is this coronavirus God's judgment on the world? Is it God's judgment on the United States? I hear a lot of people saying that. Um, one evangelical pastor online is claiming the coronavirus is God's death angel that he sent to punish the world and especially America for our sins. Uh, look, we've got a lot of sins in America. We have a lot of sins in our life. We certainly deserve God's judgment. But let me just answer this question by by making three simple points. First of all, all sickness and disease and natural disasters ultimately are the result of sin. We live in a fallen world, a fallen creation. So all the disasters and sin we see in one sense, we can trace back to um, original sin. But not all disasters and diseases are the result of personal sin or individual sin. So we need to make that point up front. Secondly, Some sickness, disease, and natural disasters are the direct result of personal sin or individual sin or even national sin. Back in the Bible, we see the plagues of Egypt. We see plagues that God brought on the Philistines. We see plagues God brought on His own people uh, for their disobedience to Him. So there have been plagues that have been poured out as judgment from God in the past. Uh, There's going to be plagues poured out as judgment from God in the future. Uh, We've seen that in in Revelation chapter 6. They're the targeted judgment of God. But the third point I would make is, apart from some divine revelation from God, we can't say for sure that any modern plague is divine judgment. I think for us to try to say that conclusively um, is presumptuous and prideful. Uh, We're claiming to know something that God has not revealed to us. So when God is silent, uh, we must be silent as well. So no one can legitimately say the coronavirus is a divine judgment from God. But I think we can say that we should use what's happening in our world and call people and call ourselves to examine our lives, to evaluate where we stand with the Lord, to use this Uh, disaster that we're seeing, this crisis we're seeing, is an opportunity to take stock of our lives and to think about where we stand with the Lord. One writer I read uh, this week put it like this. He says, every outbreak of pestilence, whether a localized epidemic or a global pandemic, should remind us of the Lord's words and force the question upon us, am I ready for Christ's return? Have I bowed the knee to Jesus as Lord? Am I living the faithful, godly life He's called me to? Will I be put to shame at His appearing? The coronavirus should impress upon us afresh that this world is passing away, that history is not going round and round in circles, but heading toward a great and terrible day of judgment. This ought to cause all of us to take stock of our lives. I think that's a valuable thing for us to do. We don't know if this is a judgment of God or not. We have no idea. The Bible doesn't tell us. 
we should use it as a time to examine and reevaluate our lives and take stock uh, of ourselves. Well, at the end of this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes on and tells his followers about his glorious coming. He said, after the tribulation of those days, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. They will mourn for him like one mourns for an only son, and they'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and with great glory. So Jesus was equipping his followers with far-sighted courage. He was pointing his followers to the end. And I think he taught them that trust and ultimate victory is what gives us ultimate courage in this life. And that's what you and I need. We need trust and ultimate victory to have ultimate courage as we face these trying times in our lives. Um, Author uh, Jim Collins uh, makes reference to this outlook in his book, Good to Great. I'm sure a lot of you have read that book. But in that book, he tells the story of Admiral James Stockdale, who was a prisoner of war for eight years during the Vietnam War. And after Stockdale's release, Collins asked him how in the world he survived eight years in a prisoner of war camp. And here was his reply. I never lost faith in the end of the story. I I love that. That's beautiful, isn't it? I never lost faith in the end of the story. He says, I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which in retrospect I would not trade for anything. And Collins then asked him, well, who didn't make it out of the prison camps? And Stockdale said, oh, that's easy. He said, the optimists. They're the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come and Christmas would go. And then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving and then Christmas. And they died of a broken heart. And commenting on that story, Max Lucado says this, Real courage embraces the twin realities of current difficulty and ultimate triumph. Yes, life stinks, but it won't stink forever. As one of my friends likes to say, everything will work out in the end. If it's not working out, it's not the end. It's a great word. Everything's going to work out in the end. If it's not working out, it's not the end. And that's the hope that you and I need to live with. Jesus is coming. Everything will work out in the end. Look, this world is headed for difficult days, but for believers in Jesus Christ, ultimately, the best is yet to come. So as a church, as God's people here at Faith Bible Church, I want us to keep our left eye, I want us to keep our near eye on what's before us. There's a lot of ministry to be done. We need to live in the meantime. We need to be fruitful and we need to be faithful in these times in which God has called us to live. But let's keep our right eye, if you will, our distance eye on the horizon, on the end time. Let's not lose faith in the end of the story. Uh, Jesus is coming, and our ultimate triumph will ultimately be found uh, in Him. So let's trust in Him. Let's not lose faith um, in the end of the story, even in these trying times in which we find ourselves. Let's pray together. If you're here watching and, and you're, you're watching via live stream or maybe watching this letter later as it's taped, and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, that's what you need to do here today. You need to look to Jesus as your only refuge, the one who died in your place on the cross and rose again, and put your hope and trust in Him. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So why not turn to Him now and trust in Him and take Him to be your Savior from sin? You can know where you're going to go. You're going to know that you'll spend eternity with Him. 
You'll have a relationship with God, and He'll never leave you, and He'll never forsake you. Father, we pray for ourselves as believers in these times that we would take stock of our lives and where we really stand with you. And Father, help us to be meantime Christians. We want to reach out to the needs around us in our culture. They're, they're great. But Father, help us to be in-time Christians as well. Help us to keep one eye on the horizon, looking for the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to live looking. And because we live looking, Father, to live lives that are pleasing to you, We ask these things in Jesus' name. May his name be praised forever. Amen. Oh, soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior. And life more abundant. Let's uh, let's look to the Lord now for our benediction as we uh, leave wherever we are.
uh, with God's blessing upon us. Again, Father, we, we look to you. We pray that you'd help us to live faithfully for you and fruitfully for you in the meantime. But, Father, help us to look to the end time as well, for that to empower us and strengthen us and give us courage to live in these times. Father, fill our hearts with hope. Send us out with your peace. All God's people said, amen. God bless you.